0: I feel a lot of pressure. I feel like there are a few days where it just feels like the world is pressing on my skin, like where it's just hard to breathe. You want to say something, you want to scream, but then you just want to look at flowers and look at the sky and escape.
1: Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Rafi Rivero, filmmaker and artist, creator of Unarmed, a series of printed basketball jerseys designed to commemorate victims of racist police violence. Rivero installs large-scale versions of the jerseys in urban areas so as to honor those who have been slain and to create awareness around ongoing violence perpetrated against people of color in America. In this two-part interview, the first recorded two weeks after the killing of George Floyd, the second several months later, We spoke about Rivero's artistic process, about the complexity of racial identities, about hope for the future, all against the backdrop of our friendship of 25 years.
0: My name is Rafi Rivero, and I'm an artist in Brooklyn, New York. A project I've been working on recently is called Unarmed, and it's a series of sports jerseys that are named after victims of police violence, black victims of racist police violence. Each unarmed jersey has the name of the victim, whether it's Eric Garner or George Floyd, and it has their age as the jersey number. George Floyd was 46, so it's number 46. Eric Garner's 43. It's designed in the color of a local sports team. So Eric Garner is in Staten Island, New York. The closest sports team is the Staten Island Yankees, which is the minor league team. And they have the Yankee pen stripes. And so I designed the jersey with that. And then somewhere along the way, I was just thinking about how many times some of the people have been shot by the police. Eric Garner, of course, was choked. But, you know, when I first moved to New York, there was the Sean Bell incident in 2006. And he was shot 50 times by the cops on the night of his bachelor party. So there are 50 stars on that jersey. Brianna Taylor was, you know, was in bed, you know, the police busted into her home, shot her eight times. So there are eight stars on her jersey. So those are the main elements just the color the number and the stars. So I started the project it was in August 2013 and it was after the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's killer. I remember the case and it was a big case and thinking well you know Obama's president he's sending Eric Holder to really oversee this case. We're in good hands. This won't this won't go by, you know, this guy will will, will get justice, George Zimmerman. And it turns out he didn't. And so that was kind of an eye-opening experience to me about how the limits of the criminal justice system and, and the reach of racism. And right after that verdict came out on a Friday, the same weekend, the movie Fruitvale Station, which is about Oscar Grant being killed in Oakland in two thousand three, premiered that same weekend. So uh, the Trayvon verdict was Friday, and I saw Fruitvale Station on Saturday, and was just crying all throughout the movie. I think a lot of people I know had that experience of just really, it was a difficult film to watch. And um, and I can remember downloading the Oscar Grant video on dial-up in like 2003 and it taking a half hour to download and just, you know, the grainy 240 pixel QuickTime video and just, it was just emotional. It was, it was shocking with Trayvon because he just seemed so innocent to me that, there wouldn't be justice for the person who killed him. And my idea was that we spend so much time rooting for sports heroes, our regular black people don't get the same kind of support. But what if I could take a regular person and and put them on a sports team? Would that make people care? Would, Would that make people think about them differently?
2: What was your idea like at the beginning that they would come jerseys that people would wear or it was more like it was going to live as a design like it would live on com- the computer?
0: Yeah I mean I I think it was always it would be great to make the physical garment and uh I'm still trying to figure out how to do that but I feel like if you have a strong enough concept it can work in multiple media.
2: I'm just going to get us started with uh kind of a provocative question but what's it like to be black in this cultural moment right now
0: it's i feel a lot of pressure i feel like there are a few days where it just feels like the world is pressing on my skin like where it's just hard to breathe and everywhere you go and you don't really go anywhere because you're just inside the whole time uh So you're on social media and it's just like a war zone on Twitter and you want to say something, you want to scream, but then you just want to look at flowers and look at the sky and escape. So there's just this constant desire to yell at the sky and say, this isn't right. And also to just say, I don't even, this. why am I dealing with this? Why do I have to process this? I would rather just be, you know, watching movies and, you know, sipping cocktails
2: yeah, I mean, you've always been sort of a really interesting guy to me because your friend group has always been racially um, really mixed. And I'm wondering, yeah, what, what's interesting, obviously, about this moment right now is that we are all inside. We're all apart, but I'm assuming that you still have contact with some of your, your social network and whatnot. And I'm curious what it's like for you to navigate difficult conversations or interesting conversations with um, a racially mixed group of friends.
0: Yeah, it's I have a, a couple weekly Zoom calls. One is with. We're all men of color. One guy's Latino. One guy's Indian, and me, and so we we kind of just have a very similar cultural point of view with regard to race, and so it feels very relaxed. You know, you you can say something. And know everybody will get it no everybody understands the pain of being upset about police brutality, whereas in this other group call I have where it's a couple of the guys are white, you always feel like you have to temper what you're saying just a tiny bit you know that it, that you have to talk a little bit more like you're on the news and a little bit less like you're yourself when to me the problem has always been so obvious that there's racism and it's killing people, and other people just a lot of people just don't agree with you on that point. And they say, no, it's got to be something else. And it's like, what else could it be at this point? That part is interesting. You you feel like these are people I like, and, and I, I want them to see how I feel, but you also don't feel like you're 100% speaking in your own voice. Um, I've also had the, the experience of a couple of white friends reaching out and calling me, and, hey, I just want to check in, which is nice, you know, um, this this feeling that people recognize that one of their friends might be going through something, but... There's sometimes a strange thing that's happened in those calls where I almost feel like they're like checking to see if they're still okay. You know, checking to see if I'm still friends with them, type of thing, as opposed to you know, it's it's like, like I'm here to help their feelings as opposed to the other the other way around. Um, so that that's like a very strange feeling.
2: Of course, yeah, I think that's a really brilliant insight and of course that's true. You know, everyone is, is who is black is feeling rage. Everybody who's white wants their guilt assuaged. I don't know. There's 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 all possible outcomes happening right now, which is sort of like this maelstrom that you uh, describe so well up on social media. I'm not built (laughs) for it, man. I'm not built for the the comment section, but tell me more about the project. Like what are the, what are the challenges inherent in being the designer around a project that is, that is built to, to honor and commemorate um, deaths?
0: I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges is just, This constant question I have is, am I participating in the spectacle of black death? And all the way back to those lynching photos and all the way back to the civil rights movement with the dogs and the fire hoses, it's like the spectacle of black suffering is a thing that changes society, but it's also ugly. And why should somebody have to get bit by a dog or kneeled on for nine minutes in order for somebody to believe that that other person is human? And to make these jerseys means that I'm playing in that same sandbox. And um, that's just a a difficult weight to carry. Um, So that's probably the first one. The second one is just actually designing the jersey. Uh, You know, I'm skilled at colors and line weights and fonts and all the things that a graphic designer might think about. And then on the one hand it's helpful for my soul, I guess, as an artist to be able to use that skill set to talk about an issue that affects me so deeply to be able to talk about racism and to be able to combat it through design. But at the same time, every jersey, I'm honoring a person and I have to relive their life. I have to Google their nickname. I have to find out how many times they were shot. And any number of times, uh, sometimes multiple times on a single jersey, I've been brought to tears. There are people, Philando Castile, Walter Scott, who I've seen the videos of them being killed. I've cried over their deaths and I couldn't bring myself to design a jersey for whatever reason. I just, I didn't want to do it. I don't actually want to do this job. But sometimes, often enough, uh, I've done 12 of them so far. I'm just like, all right, somebody needs, <laughs> it's like somebody needs this jersey designed. You know what I mean? Like like uh, with George Floyd, it took me a whole like week and a half after he was killed. And I was sitting there like, oh, I don't want to do this again. Oh, you know, somebody, somebody else is going to protest, you know. And I was kind of looking one day at, like, all the old jerseys I designed, and I include a photograph of each person. And I was looking at all their pictures, and, and I felt like these people were just looking at me like, yo, you're not going to design a jersey for this man? And I was like, damn, you know. Like, <laughs> I was like, all right, fine, you know, I'll do it, you know. But it was just, it was kind of like I was in this ridiculous conversation in my head and had to get over myself and say, this is something that I've done, and, and this is a moment where this work... Is important, so I just did it. I just, you know, one day I was like, "All right, fine. If I wake up early tomorrow, I'll just design a jersey." And then the next day, I woke up at four thirty in the morning, and I was like, "All right, well, <laughs> I guess I got to design a jersey today." And so I just did. It just it felt like a weight lifted off of me doing the work that time. Yeah, I I have never worked on something like that that was really societal in nature. You know, I think part of the artistic. Or just scratching your own itch. Oh, I like the color red next to the color yellow. What's the best, you know, shade of red? You know what I mean? And that can start to feel very trite. And so here's something that I'm talking about. You know, I've been stopped and frisked by the police. I've been pulled over for no reason. I've been called the N-word. I've been, I've had any number of racist things that have happened in my life. Jobs I've been passed over for. So it's affected my life. It's, it's, a force in my life that is hurting me and has held me back at times. And here's something that I can do, not just for myself, but for a lot of people who face these same issues and a way to speak to the injustice that envelops us. This is my first time working in that mode in a mode that's about my own subjectivity, but about a thing that, that millions of people feel and, and have a lot of grief and trauma about.
2: I, I think your project is so successful because it brings to light in in such a vivid way the, the truth of what's going on. Like, I'm really grateful for what you're doing because it's another iteration of the truth. Yeah, I'm curious about the, the, the choice of working with the professional sports teams. It's very uh, evocative to me because I think there's a truth in it is that the black men get disappeared within the culture, except if they're like mm-hmm. the chosen tiny 1%. To, to make a professional sports league. So would you talk a little bit about the, the relation to that in your work?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, there was a big thing with LeBron James and Laura Ingram, the, the kind of right wing commentator last year, where she said, you know, a couple years ago, she said, shut up and dribble. And it's like, LeBron James is a whole man. You know, he's not basketball is his job and he's the best in the world at doing that job, but he's a father, he's a son. He's, uh, just a a human being who has a lot of facets and it shouldn't be the job of any white person to tell another person what they can or cannot be and how they can or cannot use their voice and so athletes to me occupy this interesting space because they're revered for what they can do in one area of their lives and yet their whole personhood is often denied in the wider culture in the case of Black people who've been killed by the police, their personhood is denied completely, and they don't even have the access to the fandom. and the They're not six foot five, so they 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 can't ever be adored in the way that a basketball player might be. I just I, I find that thing of someone will have a favorite player, but they won't have any black friends uh, to be fascinating. It felt like a great way to talk about this disconnect in social justice through this thing that we all love which is sports which is beautiful and uh the creativity and artistry and on display and watching a game is something that I still love and and that's also part of this project is is how much value I personally get out of watching human beings dribble a basketball what if the other beauty in the, you know the rest of people's lives could be held up to such a high amount of appreciation
2: you come from a racially diverse Family. And I was wondering if you could talk about what it was like to, to grow up that way and what your relationship with, um, with you both your parents was like.
0: Well, it's interesting with my parents, both identify as black, but their skin colors are very different. My father has much darker skin tone than my mother. My mother is half Cuban and she has blue eyes. And so even as a kid, I always wondered, is she really black? But my parents were always like, you're black, we're black, I'm black. So I was kind of raised with a kind of very strident black identity. Uh, and yet, outside of the home, people would always ask me if I was biracial. And it was just, I mean, ever since I was a kid, you know, you'd be riding on the bus to school and someone would be like, are you mixed? And I was just like, I'm just riding on, just on the bus, B. I. I. You know, so um, that idea of kind of racial identity and skin color is just been something that I've thought about. I can remember, sorry for the digression, but I can remember being in preschool. I was four years old. And there's this kid who's my best friend in preschool. And he was biracial. And I was black. But our skin is the same color tan. And, you know, the teacher was like, I want to talk about the colors. You know, because our our preschool was very diverse. Lots of Latinos, lots of black people, lots of white people. She's like, I want to talk about the colors. And I said, I'm black, you know, because that's what my parents would always tell me. And then my friend Martin said, you're not black, you're tan. And I was like, oh, yeah, I am tan. You know, I went home and I told my parents, I said, you know, I'm not black, I'm tan. And they said, no, no, you're black, you're black. Don't ever tell anyone tell you you're not black, you know. And so uh, I, did, I had no idea what they were talking about because, you know, Martin is the same color as me and we, you know, we were best friends. And but I knew like Martin's dad was black like my dad and his mother was white and I'm putting air quotes around that because she had the same skin color as my mother but she was just kind of like a tawny you know Italian looking white woman but I knew instinctively that his mother was white and my mother was black even though they kind of looked the same too and that he was biracial and I was black I uh, you know so I've kind of had this fascination with identity and racial identity even from then from you know being four years old but I've always identified as black and I've always had a very diverse group of friends for whatever reason, I can't tell you. I've always enjoyed that. There are these cultural norms around blackness and around hip hop and around language where I'm part of that. I grew up in that that is my kind of home social context, and yet there's this wider group of people that you can interact with and, and be friends with. Um, that has nothing to do with the accident of your birth and that uh, you can build friendships and relationships with all types of people just based on whether or not they're a good person whether or not you, you can laugh and, and enjoy each other's company. I, you know, I think, in a weird way, the, the easiest way to start conquering racism is just to have some friends who are from a different race. It's you know, not that hard. You know, if you know a bunch of different types of people, then you will think about them When you think about a new job applicant or who to award this contract to or, you know, whatever the kind of ways that you might have power in your life, I think if people have those types of friendships and relationships, then they think differently about new people coming into their lives, whereas so many people have these balkanized lives and and you look on their Facebook profiles and all their friends are white and you're like, you know, I don't don't know how you can live like that, you know, in, in a modern America. Or vice versa, you know, black people, all their friends are black, which I actually understand a lot better. Um, but I, I think the key is to find those ways, whether it's through work, whether it's through, you know, I, I'm on like all kinds of online communities and it's like just guys who like cameras, you know, and I'll friends, an like, Asian guy who likes cameras or a European guy or another black guy. And it's just like, we just have this interest. Nobody really cares. And if the rest of society could be like that, I think it would be much better, but it's not. And, um, and so that's why we're trying to change it.
2: What's your biggest hope for this cultural moment, and what is your biggest fear for this cultural moment? And I'll tell you, just to preface it, that my biggest fear for right now is that that the momentum will get lost, that it's sort of like the the ADD nature of uh, the media will kind of move on to something else within two weeks.
0: Racism is a a system that's been built over hundreds of years, and we're not going to dismantle it with three weeks of marching. So, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, and some of that is internal and some of that is structural in terms of our systems. And to dismantle a force that large takes months and years of pressure and consistent effort. And so, what I don't want is for the effort to dissipate just because we as a culture have moved on because some nice thing happened, you know, in, in a NASCAR race, and oh, well, everybody's good now. Um, Well, no, uh, it isn't. But my hope is that so many people have been mobilized. You you kind of can't unsee that George Floyd video. You, You can't. And when you see that and then you think about all these other videos that have been dribbling out over the years, then you see that our policing institutions are rotten somehow and they're penalizing people for no reason, for the way that they look. And if you can take that lens and apply it to every other system in our society, whether it's healthcare, education, you know, housing, then you see how big a problem that we're facing. And I hope that people are willing to do the work in whatever part of society that they work in and and where their life is.
2: Masculinity, black masculinity in general, where where is that in this moment? And the reason I bring that up is because the jerseys are, are, are... uh, for men uh, outside of Breonna Taylor, right? Or is there another woman
0: who's in there? There's a Sandra bond jersey as well, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, so it's not completely a masculine um, uh, project, but at the same time, the police brutality is effect- affecting Black males more so, I think, than Black women. You can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. I'm just interested to hear you talk about um, Black masculinity at this moment and some of the... Um, some of the more complex facets of it.
0: You know, I think one of the problems with black masculinity, at least as it's depicted in the media, is that it's, it's this hyper-masculinity. And part of it is because of sports and the way sports are marketed. They're these kind of black men that are kind of infallible physical beings and with perfect bodies. You can run and jump and do all this stuff. And that doesn't make room for us as... Emotional beings. I've received, you know, lots of messages from people who just said, these jerseys made me cry. You know, that's black men writing me saying, thank you for doing this, you know, keep doing this. Um, I got emotional looking at this. And I think one of the only times you get to see black men crying is when they win a sports championship. But regular people and black people, especially during this moment, are turning on CNN and crying. I was watching... The CBS Morning News, they interviewed Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, about the new... Apple had a big conference yesterday, and what's going to come out with Apple? And what are your responsibilities as a huge company and your social responsibilities? And, and Tim Cook names George Floyd, and then CBS News cuts to the f- footage of George Floyd being killed. And I'm, I'm like crying watching a damn thing about Apple, right? And so black masculinity is encompassing of our emotions and not just our ability to dribble a basketball. But most people don't see that part of us, and we're not almost allowed culturally to have that part of our beings be expressed. One of the things that's been gratifying to me as an artist is the number of Black men that have written to me saying how emotional this work has made them.
2: There's also something extraordinarily tragic about your project, you know, just the just when we when we spoke last week you got choked up telling me that you had to design another fucking jersey you know and it's sort of like you know i i love this this project and i i wanted to end our conversation talking about the future of it and then it's like god what a what a terrible thing to to even talk about the future of this project is uh, more jerseys
0: i mean uh <laughs> I, it's really tough every single time to design a new one. You you want every jersey to be the last one, and often what happens is the next week something happens. I just designed the George Floyd jersey. We printed them, presented them on the streets. It got a great response, and then I'm coming home and and you see the Rashard Brooks video on Twitter the next night, you know, three nights later, you know, um, and it's like, I, 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 I can't even revel in having brought my artwork onto the streets before I'm looking at another video looping as a gif on my Twitter feed of a guy getting shot in the back because he took a nap in his car. It's, 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 it's exhausting, man. Hmm. It's a thing I don't like about this project is that it's reactive. Something bad happens and then here I am having to, because I gave myself this stupid assignment doing it. And I'd rather have a project as an artist that's proactive that I come up with an idea and I do it. And I keep bringing it forward. But the nature of Unarmed is that I'm responding. You know, and I've had people ask, you're not going to design a jersey for such and such? You know, and it's like this infinite repository of pain so I have to find these ways and these strategies of how much energy do I have to actually meet this moment to meet this person's story and I'm not always going to be able to do it I mean you know when I was a kid I was like I was really good at baseball and soccer and stuff like and I you know you'd you'd watch tv and stuff like that and you see the kids in the commercials and are they talking about an all-american kid and I just thought Like, who is more all-American than me? Like, I was, you know, I was an all-American kid. Like, if they're talking about an all-American kid, they're talking about me. Like, I just knew that I was that guy. And at some point in my life, I realized that nobody else thought of me that way. And that nobody would ever think about me that way. it's it's just really painful in in that way <laughs>
2: project and okay so how have your feelings around racial justice around what's going on in our country evolved between today and the first day that we spoke and I, if I'm not mistaken that was about like within two weeks after the killing of, of George Floyd I'm curious what it's been like for you personally over this time
3: it's, it's interesting I, you know, I've been working on unarmed off and on for 70 years and in the George Floyd moment was feeling very raw and emotional to have to revisit Unarmed again, because you, you think of Unarmed as something you don't want to do. You don't want to have to memorialize these victims of police violence. And then yeah, I did it and then brought to public, and it, it put me kind of in a situation of, of putting my feelings on public display. And now that a couple of months have gone by, two things have happened. One, I just never stopped working on Unarmed as a project. I've moved into figuring out how to do more installations in other cities. I'm working on getting garments manufactured. I'm doing all kinds of stuff, legal, uh, web stuff. So it turned into a much bigger project. I have two partners who are working with me now, plus a social media person, so it's, it's kind of become my job. And on the other side, having nothing to do with me, there's this kind of social justice protest movement around Black Lives that's been going on, I think everyone was wrapped up in the emotions. Everybody was kind of doing this public grieving and protest. And now that a few months have gone by, it was weird kind of walking around New York these past few days and, and just being like, Oh, right. Like I'm the only one who's thinking about George Floyd and Eric Garner and Breonna Taylor every single day of my life. Like everyone else kind of has their lives. Well, talk to me about some of the
2: reactions that you've gotten around the jerseys. Like, have you gotten all positive? Have there been any negative reactions? Can you share a couple of stories around people who have seen the installations?
3: Yeah, when we it, when we first started installing the jerseys, it was really exciting because it was almost the second we put up George Floyd. We moved 10 feet down and started putting up another jersey, and someone had already stopped and taken a photograph of it. And then they took a photo of us putting them up. And that was my experience for all three installations that we did was that the second we put something up, people were photographing us and asking us about it. People in cars honking, raising their fists, people asking, where can I buy one of these? Are they available? I've had a lot of that, you know, people writing in, emailing, even some a tweet went semi-viral, someone photographing to my partners, posting more jerseys. So there's there's been a lot of public kind of support of the project, and then there's been people who have written in angry angry screeds. You know, uh, I hesitate to call them racist because they didn't use any racist language, but certainly fueled by racial anger. Uh, I've gotten text messages, direct messages on Instagram and Twitter. I've gotten emails. So there has been this small kind of vocal. Minority of people who have been very against uh, what the work stands for. Uh, Even I lost a friend, a guy on Instagram who I've known for many years, just sending some really angry, hateful stuff that I ended up actually having to block his comments on on Instagram. So um, there has been that side, too. I mean, you hesitate to call it racist, but I can't think of any other explanation
2: for people being upset about jerseys that commemorate black men and women who have been killed by police. than.
3: I mean, you know, I, I... I have experienced all kinds of racism. And so, yeah, someone like vandalized one of my jerseys, you know, a few of them, like all of them. Uh, and, uh, which is part of being in the street and part of street art. I'm like, Chris Rock had a great line. Why does someone have to lynch Medgar Evers before we can call them a racist? So yes, I do think some of the blowback I've gotten is racist. It doesn't make me angry. Exactly. I mean, it, some of it hurts, but also, in a way I have a kind of gladiator warrior mindset about this product just because there's the public part that people are seeing now is built over seven years of me doing it when nobody was looking. So like my armor is like super hard and I've been working and grinding and figuring this idea out for a long time before people started attacking me for it. So for them, they're in, a first blush of what it means to confront these ideas. Whereas I've been thinking about this for quite a while. Even some of the guys I've been working with, with unarmed who've been helping me build the project and make it into something that can be a little bit more substantial have all said at some point they had to just walk away from the laptop. Like you're, you know, one of the guys was, we were reformatting some images from the web and he's, you're going through all the jerseys and trying to find high res images on Google images of Eric Garner and, and Sandra Bland and you're just kind of going through these names, trying to find the best image. And he was like, yeah, I spent two and a half hours doing this and I I just had to stand up and leave the room because the power of unarmed is that you're confronting Hmm. horror. You're confronting racist violence, uh, the worst form of, what it means to live in our society, which is the society has an allowance that a certain kind of people can be murdered with no repercussions.
1: And once
3: you start to think about that and turn that into your job, then it hurts to think about, at some point you will break down and cry, at some point you will have enough. I've been doing it enough that I have built in that allowance. It's not like you can just sit down and work on unarmed eight hours the same way that you can work on a screenplay for eight hours. Like at some point you're just like, oof, this is tough. Let me open a window and let some air in here. Um, And I think for people who are new to working on the project or in the case of some of the angry people new to seeing the project, they they haven't confronted that yet. And so there's this kind of sledgehammer of emotion that is part of Unarmed that hits people whether they love it or hate
2: it. I think so. I think that's so well put. I think there's an immense depth to the project, and what's kind of impressive about this project is that the depth is not apparent within the first moment of looking at
3: the jerseys. In fact, the message of it is codified. What I like about the installations is that the shape of the jersey cutout reads from across the street. You're like, oh, there's a basketball jersey advertisement. Is what you're probably thinking. You know from that far away and then you get closer and you see that it's, it's definitely a basketball jersey and there's a name and a number It says unarmed and you're like what's that team and if you can make the leap between a last name like floyd and the number 46 and unarmed then you're really talking and then for the people who lean all the way in, there's the jock tag which is uh the little portion on, on all sports jerseys they have the the tag that the manufacturer puts on which you know, has like a lot of stats about polyester or whatever, um, but it's always on the front, and so we changed the, the jock tag into uh, a design element, which gives you even more granular detail about the person, their name, the date of the incident, what happened, how many bullets they were shot with, and... So Unarmed reads at all those different depths from far away to, you know, leaning in all the way close. And and I've seen a number of people just lean in and take pictures with their phone of that jock tag, um, which is just a 12-point font on a, you know, two-and-a-half-foot-tall thing. So um, that part of it is really exciting to create something that that has layers of depth and and that brings people all the way to six inches Mm -hmm. From their face and that works you know from 100 feet away yes now you so you have a, a a road trip in the works
2: that involves these jerseys can you tell me about that
3: yeah for the last couple months i've just been kind of trying to talk myself into an idea and basically did of taking these unarmed installations into the cities that have suffered these traumas of, of racist police killing so going to Kenosha, Wisconsin, going to Louisville, Kentucky, Breonna Taylor, going to Minneapolis, George Floyd, uh, St. Louis, Mike Brown. And I've reached out to some arts organizations and activists and journalists and just people connected in those places who can, A, point me to good locations, but also people that might want to participate in installing the jerseys as a kind of event or as a healing act. For me, it's, it's really moving spiritual experience to actually press this this, this thick vinyl sticker when you press it onto a wall, you just you feel like you're helping, you feel like you're honoring the person and like you are the one who is helping this person's spirit Mm. live on. I just think that that's a, a powerful feeling that I'd like to share. Actually, at my screening, I had a screening on Thursday in Brooklyn, and I had a couple of the unarmed jerseys. Wednesday, last Wednesday, the 16th, was the four-year anniversary of, of the Terrence Crutcher killing in Tulsa, and so I just had a a, a Tulsa, uh, you know, Crutcher jersey to display during the screening. And this little girl was there with her mother. I knew the mother, uh but the girl was you know, three or four years old, and she was helping me, you know, her little hands. So, pressing the jersey the crusher jersey onto this this easel that we brought out that was just a a great example to me of how this project could work in in a a kind of public realm and it doesn't just have to be me putting them up so i just love to share that in these communities
2: have you had response from the people who you've reached out to the activists journalists within the the communities that you are planning on going to
3: yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've made contact in three out of the four cities. I don't have anyone yet in, in Louisville, but I've, I'm in touch with an arts organization and, and business development district in St. Louis, as well as a couple activists an activist in Minneapolis. Um, someone who's hooked me up with a, a few other arts organizations there. I know a lot of people in Milwaukee, uh, some of whom know some people in Kenosha. So we're, we're trying to figure out what the best you know, there's a part of me, like, if I just go sneak attack graffiti style, nobody even knows I'm there and put them up. That's exactly what I did in New York, and that'll be fine. Um, but if I can kind of bridge this gap and, and actually connect with people on the ground there, I think they'll be much more powerful. So I'm aiming for that, but uh, not afraid to, to, to do it ski mask style, too.
2: I had a couple of things to say. One is we're talking on September 22nd or 23rd, and I think that the grand jury is going to come back to people who are deciding the fate of the police officers in the Breonna Taylor case.
3: It's such a explosive time in America because of the confluence of the social justice activism around Black Lives Matter and COVID-19 you know, you have the wildfires in California, like everybody is suffering from something right now. It does feel like this cauldron of trauma. On the one hand, that's a little scary. And you don't want to be kind of recklessly stirring the pot. On the other hand, I feel that this artwork and the time for it to be seen is right now while people are talking about these issues and are grieving these issues. I'm hopeful that it gives people pause that, that people reflect on these stories and what it means. Why does it, do we have this project called Unarmed? I, there's no reason I should know Jacob Blake's name, but we all do and we all saw that video and we all have been disgusted uh, again and again.
2: Have you reached out to any of the family members of the people who were unjustly killed?
3: I haven't yet. I did, uh, uh for another project actually a year ago, I, interviewed terence crutcher's twin sister uh terence crutcher was four years old and was killed by the police in tulsa and i interviewed his sister for a documentary project that i was doing and it was a very emotional interview um she cried during the interview we, we talked for almost 45 minutes she would be the first person i'd reach out to just because we we'd already talked and, and talked a bit about her brother's story i didn't even mention that i had designed a jersey for her brother when we had the interview, but it was kind of in the back of my mind to say, but I didn't want to, you know, we were talking about something else. We were just talking about social justice generally, not something that that I had done, but I know I have a window to to reach out to her directly and I'm hoping that uh, I might be able to get in touch with some of the other families through her and through a network that that she's become a part of. I want
2: to encourage you to, to do that. And, and part of this is because, I think that you and I share some similarities as as not just as artists, but as people. And there's a kind of introversion that both of us share. We're, we're real easy to talk to, kind of like when you get to know us, but neither of us is going to be like that dude in the front of the room who's going to like say, hold on, excuse me, everyone, look at me. There are times when it pays to be bold. And I think this is one of the times that it will be well worth your time to at least chase getting into contact with some of the families of these people because it is a deep honoring of the person mm. who they've lost. It is it is a a powerful offering and it is spoken in a language of accessibility because people connect with design and people connect with sports and it is you may feel embarrassed because you may imagine that these people are, are, are thinking to themselves, who is this artist? Does he know me? Does he know my pain? But I believe that the reaction will, in fact, be completely opposite to that. These people will be thinking, finally, there is an appropriate honoring going on that people who in the streets of this city can connect to. Thank
3: you. Thank you. Yeah. I... I have these little visions of, of meeting with family members. And, you know, one of the things I've I've started to work on is is to even produce a couple of the garments, you know, not as just stickers, but that would be an amazing moment to hand someone a Jersey. So that's, that is a thing that drives me is the idea of having some sort of meeting and being able to present the artwork to the families. And that's a reason to go to the cities also,
2: Mm -hmm.
3: you know, it's one thing to be kind of lobbing hand grenades from over here in Brooklyn or whatever, but another thing to, to kind of show up and be in those places. And someone reached out to me and told me that they're in touch with the Brown family and what I like to get in touch there and for the work to be seen by the families, I just think would, would, would be gratifying. Right.
2: Exactly. And, and a ratcheting up of the, the stakes, you know, for you personally, and you spoke of this gladiator like mentality this the shielding and the armoring that you've had to put on. So use that in going forward, and taking a chance. And remember that this is all about the honoring that you can bring, and the relief that you can bring to the family. I, I haven't lost people within my family. But I can only imagine that it's this, this incredibly deep well of, of grief have to deal with day in and day out. And there's something about your project that has this vitality to it to go along with the honoring, I think can be really healing.
3: Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah,
2: yeah. I'll update you and I'll look forward to to making some of these connections. I recently read Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm -hmm. He spoke about attending Howard University, I believe as an undergraduate. And I I know that you attended... Mm Howard as a as a film student ta Coates described Howard in some senses as a mecca for black people he he paints it in just glowing glowing terms was it for you also a mecca what was your experience um at Howard
3: I had I had a, a funny experience at Howard in that I had a lot of moments where I was like what am I doing here and and I'm I, you know I kind of didn't catch the groove until kind of later on until I, so I was there. I was in DC for four years and the grad film program at Howard for, for three and a half of them. I knew Howard had this reputation and had this nickname of, you know, the Mecca. And I, I'd grown up partially in Washington, DC. So it was kind of a homecoming for me to even be at Howard. What I ended up finding was like this tremendous pride and being there and being at a black institution. I've gone to private school and an Ivy League school and kind of been in white elite institutions for however many years, 10 years prior to, to going to grad school at Howard. And that has a way of working on your brain as a black person of, of kind of teaching you two things. One, that you don't quite belong and two, that certain people like you are quote unquote special and mm, so there are some people mm, who take on the, the belief that that specialness is true and and become very protective of their status as kind of black people within these elite white institutions and that becomes kind of an identity feature for them and in a way for me going to Howard was was kind of a rejection of that and saying well what what's it like to be in a black institution and part of it was when I was in college and I would make a film, you know, I would always get these questions of like, is that, you know, some kind of hip hop thing that you're doing here? Or, you know, people, I think, thoughtfully and, and well-meaning questions were always about like kind of trying to understand my cultural context and making the work. And I was like, what if I just got rid of this whole otherness that has like trapped me into this identification piece? And And I'm just a filmmaker and my blackness is just Kind of normalized? Will people just teach me whether or not I'm making a good film? You know, will people critique my work based on kind of its inherent qualities rather than trying to stretch to make some kind of cultural leap first before evaluating the work? And that was a thing that I loved every day at Howard. Was you'd come out of class and you'd just see hundreds of black black people walking around wearing backpacks, you know, going to class, and tons of you know Howard's known for having like a lot of really cute women and so you'd just see like tons of hotties walking around with backpacks going to class and there was a way where i could kind of offload some of my anxiety about what institution i was in or what people thought of me as a kind of other within their institution and could just kind of work on my own ideas as an artist so that was probably the most exciting part of being at howard to me and then also i always got the sense that the professor's really cared that you succeed and really wanted to see you succeed and not just as their students but kind of personally uh, were invested in your success an odd teacher here and there and in, in my other schools gave me that feeling but but I never kind of felt like that full embrace of any institution like I did at Howard At Howard it was just like you felt like the the woman like at the financial aid desk like really cared you know you felt like the woman at the you know, at the computer lab who was signing you in to your, you know, get your ID to log on to the internet, really cared, you know, you just felt like every single person, you know, the security guard outside of the, you know, the school of communications really wanted you to go make your movie. You said a really interesting thing about when you were at at college, and, and we went to
2: school together, you're actually my first friend. You, you, you spoke about the exceptionality, the feeling of exceptionality, but also this feeling of exclusion and i'm I'm wondering was your identity as a black man to what degree was it formed when at the age of eighteen when we met what Where were you on your journey of of identity around that
3: um hmm. I think there was a part of me that had this aspirational vision of myself as A strong black man whatever that means to you in high school and wanted to be seen as that you know in uh, in in high school i did a painting of the you know john carlos and tommy smith 1968 mexico city thing where they raised the black fist on the at the olympics you know and, and and you know this kind of political racial activist person was kind of like a aspiration of mine but also knowing me as this kind of softy, you know, as this kind of guy with a nice smile who goes along and gets along with a lot of people. And with this kind of aspirational vision of myself, couldn't quite connect with who I know myself to be, which is, you know, I I like to smile and joke and I have a, I'm a warm person, I guess. Also, I didn't grow up in a kind of traditional What I consider, like, the normative black experience has a lot to do with the church and has a lot to do with having a much darker skin color than I do. And so I always felt, like, even within blackness, like I was somewhat of an outsider. And so some of this, like, desire to be more political or more active on certain issues was, in a way, a form of proving myself as a black person. Even going to Howard, you know, it's like, proving, like, I checked it off, like, I'm really black. You can't ever take that degree away from me.
2: I'm going to ask you to tell me something about being black for you that, that you experienced that I would never know. And, um, since it's, I don't want this to be an unbalanced, like gross thing. I'll tell you something about my experience of being white that you might never know. Should I go first? Uh,
3: sure. Or yeah, I can go first. Or You go, you, you tell me. Yeah. I'm I'm excited to hear what you're going to say. So, it, mine's
2: pretty simple. Oh, do you want but... me to go
3: first? Are you? At, how about I answer your question and then you can tell me the cool thing? I don't know. You, you tell me. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Yeah. If
2: you, if you have something, of uh, let me, let me hear you.
3: Okay. Um. So I one of the uh, coolest parts about being black is using black language, and I think that most people who are not black enjoy black language, and you know you. See people say oh that's dope you know on twitter you know what i mean or um repeating rap lyrics is probably the most kind of common version of that but as much joy as you know white people or others get out of black language we get that times 10 because we came up with it so the kind of there's a kind of constant playing with language that we're doing some of it is in this kind of grammar that is 90 degrees different from traditional English grammar and part of the fun is coming up with these really odd constructions. Part of the fun is repeating something that you heard somebody say with a really funky style of how the words kind of slam up against one another. To me, like my actual, what I consider to be like my natural language is a mix of that, of street shit with like intellectual language. And to the degree that within a single text message, I can misspell a word and then say something that you might hear in an Ivy League classroom. The extent you can do that five times in a row is just incredibly satisfying. So I have certain friends and we, we kind of speak in that language of like half street, half book. I think most black people are doing some version of that at all times, just like playing and saying things in a really cool way. I'll give you an, a concrete example. It's not something that I said, but uh, I lived in New Orleans for a summer, and there was just this constant fun that people were having with their work. And I, I was like in a like a CVS one time, and I was just, you know, buying, a, you know, some Band-Aids or whatever. And there's a guy, and he was, like, talking to the – everyone's always talking, you know. Everything's a little slow in New Orleans, because so everyone always has something to say. And he, whatever he was buying, he was just like a – talking to the, the attendant woman and he, he was explaining, you know, the classic thing of the cable company told me to be home between 8am and 4pm. So they could come fix my box. You know, the sentiment he was trying to get across was, you know, well, what can you do? Uh, but the way he said, well, what can you do was now that Johnny Cochran's dead, I guess I can't cut nobody. And like, it, it was just like this, you know, this like ridiculous OJ joke that he made talking about his, cable guy to the CVS woman, you know, and it was just like, <laughs> like I was in a this bar one time and I kind of knew the bartender, cute white woman, say she was 26 years old, guy comes in, you know, 55 year old black dude, this middle of the day on a Friday, you know, buy a drink. It was like the perfect to me encapsulation of this play with language in New Orleans and, you know, something that would absolutely never happen in New York City, which is where I'd been living before I went to New Orleans. So the guy walks in, the woman looks at him, she says, uh, can I get you something, honey? And he says, uh, you can get me a million dollars. And then she looks, she looks back at him, she like pauses and looks, she's like, only if you give me half, you got to give me half. And then the guy kind of smiles and looks back at her and says, uh, I give you a hundred thousand. be good with a hundred thousand. And then she, she looks back at him and she's like, shoot, that ain't enough for me, baby what you drinking and then he orders in Tennessee or whatever (laughs) And it was just like you know it was just like everyone was just playing you know with their words constantly and like that part of it is kind of a secret of blackness that I don't think people quite understand
2: well done thank you for for divulging that I love that uh all right my turn um it's not as it's not as cool. It's not as cool, but it's real. Um, I think something about being white for me that you wouldn't know is that I don't like that identity or that moniker. There's a lot of shame in being white, you know, particularly in in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, there's this guy who I follow on Twitter. Actually, you follow him too, uh, Nathaniel Friedman. He's a basketball writer, and he went to my Hebrew school growing up in my mm-hmm. high school. But he, uh, he said, I consider myself off-white, which is like kind of a joke, but kind of true. You know, there's this pain to being part of a normative culture. And like there's really nothing special about being normative. Yeah, I always latched on to being Jewish, even as a child, not really because I liked the religion. You know, in fact, I divorced myself from that really early. But I latched onto it because it proved that I'm different. I'm non-normative. I might be interesting. And I realize that I participate in in white supremacist culture because I get all the benefits of being white, and I pass. But in my heart of hearts, I want really badly to be thought of as anything but this kind of boring, normative blob. And I would imagine that that's true for a lot of other white people. And and I say all this like completely aware of all the power that being part of a normative culture has. I have the power to be pulled over in my car, without fear because the shit Mm -hmm. that you have been working so hard on for years just doesn't happen to me. But yeah, that's my secret, but maybe you already knew.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, 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 it's like, I can't figure out how to solve it. Right. But there has to be a solution because, you know, we, we have all kinds of other things that we fixed. You know, we all wear clothes, so we're warmer, you know, we have houses and cars and we can get all over the place. So racism is something that's fixable too. You know, we, we have, you know, if you eat meat, you have knives and, you know, freezers, and there's like all these tools for like solving all these other problems that we've had in life. And so there has to be a, a solution for this. I think some of it is just in the talking and sharing and communing and creating relationships that, that kind of reshape the bounds of, of you know of our lives and, but then in terms of the systemic stuff I mean I, I think like there's got to have been a point where it was just cool to say whatever about a person of a different race or you know among guys about women and then over time it kind of became not cool to say those things right like manners or whatever created a point where like norms were established and certain things were, were beyond those norms. To me, like we just need to really investigate where racism is, exists in our systems and, and, and flip those norms so that they're not cool anymore too. Uh, because there's, there's gotta be norms in, in the way realtors work or in the way, you know, school budgets are drawn up or tax dollars are distributed that are built on racism. And there are all these like little tiny atomized places and pockets of racism that are actually oppressing people. And if we could just like flip those, all those little tiny little things, then society would be more just and equitable. This work you're talking about of the personal, like understanding one's place as Uh, he or she relates to a wider group. And then the other part is the action, which is always more difficult, but not impossible. And Mm. uh, like, what change can I make? What is the one thing I can do? What is the one choice I have? What is the one vendor I can hire that will kind of change some of these dynamics? If you can get millions of people making those types of different decisions from the ones they would have made eight times out of 10 previously, then we can have a systemic change. Uh, I do think it's possible. Uh, I don't think it's easy, but I do think it's possible. Rafi Rivero, how can we follow your project and follow your progress
2: as you uh, go across America and continue this awesome work that you're doing?
3: Uh, the best place to find me is on Twitter, Rafi Rivero, all one word. And for Unarmed, we have unarmed.co. You can sign up uh, for email updates or unarmed.co on Instagram where we'll be posting lots of these images from, from this journey. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks, Sam. Thanks. Uh, it's great talking to you as well and, and, and great checking in. You've always been an inspiring person to me in my growth and career as an artist.
1: Thanks for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Terry Gilby and Michelle Broderick. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Interstitial music is by Dream Chorus. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions.